We do appreciate uh, everyone's presence today. Glad everyone's here, whether you're a regular member here at Oak Mountain or, or visiting, we're glad for your presence and appreciate everyone's good participation in our worship today. It's been encouraging to me as we've sung together and prayed together. And very important uh, that we do this. We take it seriously. We believe it's important and uh, to spend some time together in this way is, is worth our while. Uh, I was reminded of a, a passage in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 16. Israel uh, is, has become an idolatrous nation. They've turned away from God to idols, and God is addressing that and confronting that. He says, You also took your beautiful jewels and made my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself male images that you may play the harlot with them. You took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey, with which I fed you. You would offer before them for a soothing aroma, so it happens, declares the Lord. And I emphasize, tried to emphasize the statement in, the, in those verses. These are things that I gave you, and you've wasted them, you've used them in your devotion to idols. There, there are people, I hope we're not among them, there are, are people who go through life, and they enjoy the gifts that God has given them. They enjoy the air that He gives them to breathe. They enjoy the, the body that He's given them. They enjoy the food that He's provided them and the homes that He's provided them. And never say thank you, never express any gratitude. And again, I hope we're not among them. And I just wonder... How God's, what's God's response to that would be. It's a little annoying to me, I have to admit, to go into a place of business and, and buy something and do business there and then, and then go and, and, and pay for it. Never a thank you from the people that work there. Never any acknowledgement that, that you've come here and you've done your business here. We're grateful for that. That's a little annoying to me, you know. How much more annoying is it to God that we go through life and all of these things that He has given to us. And we never say thank you, never express any gratitude. We, we don't want to be in that, you know, in, in that category of people. We want to be grateful, we want to be thankful, and this is one of the ways we do that. We come together and we praise Him, and we honor Him, and we do express our devotion to Him in song, in prayer, in observing the Lord's Supper, in studying from His Word. Now, that's not what I'm going to preach about. <laughs> but those thoughts did pass through my mind today and, and pass through my mind fairly frequently as we come together. I think about this highway out here, all the people while we're in here worshiping. I don't know where they're going. So maybe some of them going to worship. But I imagine a lot of them are thinking about other things on the Lord's Day and not thinking about the gifts that God has given them. I want to turn to the Gospel of John this morning. I want to talk about uh, an, an event in the, in the crucifixion, in the process of the crucifixion of Jesus. And just pick up on a phrase that's found in the book of John. It's not found in the other Gospel writers. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But it's in the book of John. Just, just pick up on that phrase. And I hope we'll say some things that will make us think. I hope there'll be thought-provoking comments today. So just remember the setting a little bit as we begin. 
Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. You can see that back in uh, John chapter 18. J Judas betrays Jesus. And he's arrested there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's bound and he's led away to the home of Annas first and then to the home of Caiaphas. At the home of Caiaphas, which is a kind of a strange uh, setting, it seems to me, strange event. Here you have the, the council, the Sanhedrin, the sort of the, the court of the Jews. They're meeting together before daylight in the home of the high priest. They're waiting for Jesus. All of this has been pre-planned. And so they're waiting for Jesus to get there. And, and Jesus comes in and they begin to interrogate him. And uh, on this occasion, he's accused of blasphemy. And uh, eventually, he's, uh, the charges against him are, are settled. And then at the beginning of the day, maybe not long after daybreak, they go to the chambers of the court, the, the Sanhedrin, the council. And he's formally charged. He's charged with uh, uh, committing blasphemy, being a man, making himself God. He's spat on. He's ridiculed. He's slapped. He's wrongfully convicted. Once they decide that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy, wrongfully again, I'll say, then he's taken to Pilate. Now, Pilate is a Roman official. The Jews don't have the right to carry out executions for themselves. They have to get permission from the Romans, from the Roman government to do that. And so they go to Pilate, it's a Roman governor there of Judea, and, and they, they ask him for permission to crucify him. Well, Pilate's not going to grant that permission without interrogating Jesus first. The Jews accuse him of three things, misleading our nation, sort of being a rabble-rouser, forbidding people to pay taxes, which was, of course, untrue, and making himself king, a rival to Caesar. So Pilate interviews Jesus three times, each time finding no action deserving of execution or crucifixion. In fact, Pilate tries to release Jesus on more than one occasion, but the crowds refuse to allow him to do that, and, and they insist on Jesus being crucified. They cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And finally, Pilate acquiesces. He washes his hands of the matter and turns Jesus over to be crucified. In John chapter 9, we kind of take up in the middle of that process. In verse 1 it says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Now, most of us know what scourging is from previous study of the Bible, but there may be some who are not familiar with that process. The victim of scourging, he's, he's stripped of his clothing, and he's tied usually maybe to a post or something like that, and a whip, a lash, is you know, let's, brought down on, on his bare flesh. And the lash has bits of bone or something sharp in it, maybe glass, and so it just lacerates the flesh. And so this little brief statement, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Just think about, just think about that for a minute, what that involved, and what the effect of that would be on Jesus. And then verse 2 says, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. So Jesus is claiming to be king, and here's just derision and mocking and contempt shown for Jesus, this crown of thorns. And so this, this, these branches with big, long thorns 
molded in, shaped into the form of a crown, and it set down on Jesus' head. So just think about that, what the effect of that would be. And they uh, put a purple robe on him. You know, kings wore robes and purple robes. And again, just mocking him and ridiculing and showing their contempt for him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And of course, they're insulting him. They're ridiculing him in, in saying that. And they gave him slaps in the face. So just think about that scene. Here's Jesus. He's been convicted, been lied about. He's been beaten and slapped and mocked. He's been, been whipped. He's been scourged. He has a crown of thorns. He's got this purple robe on him. And then, verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Look, I want you to look at this man. Behold the man. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Behold the man. What do you think they saw when they looked at Jesus? Remember, he's got this crown of thorns. He's been beaten. He's bloodied. He's bruised, wearing this purple robe. And, and Pilate says, I want you to look at this man. I want you to behold him. Oh, what do you think they saw? Well, I want to suggest some things that I think people must have seen when they looked at Jesus on that occasion. And then what we ought to see when we look at that man on that occasion, in our mind's eye, of course, but when we behold the man. No doubt, Pilate saw an opportunity to insult the Jews. And so here's Jesus. He claims to be a king. He claims to be the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. Pilate has interviewed him and asked him, are you a king? And Jesus, of course, admits that he is a king, that he's born to be a king. That's why he came into the world. He, he, and, and so... Pilate is showing this man to the Jews and saying, Here, here's your king. Well, what do you think of him? Look at him, how weak he is. And, and this one is to be your king. <laughs> and so in contempt, in derision, Pilate says, Behold the man. And so no doubt Pilate saw an opportunity to insult the Jews. If you go down a little bit further in John chapter 19, verse 15, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answers, We have no king but Caesar. And then verse 19, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross above, above his head, above Jesus' head. And the inscription read, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Now don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the, he said, I am the king of the Jews. And that's not what we say about him. That's what he said about himself. And Pilate said, well, What I've written, I've written. I'm not going to change it. And so again, here's an opportunity to insult them, to deride them. To show his contempt. That, that's, no doubt that's what Pilate saw when he beheld the man. The Jewish leader saw the death of an imposter and a threat. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. They, and so they, they considered him an imposter, a blasphemer, 
someone who's lying about his true identity. Many of them, uh, of course, many of the people believed in Jesus and they were following him and the Jewish leaders were threatened by that. Remember in the book of Mark chapter 15 and verse 10, there we read again that many were following Jesus and so it was for envy that they were delivering Jesus over to be crucified. And so they saw him as a threat. Earlier in the book of John, uh, John chapter 11 and verse 47, there's this expression of their fear that he's going to stir the people up and they're going to lose their place in their nation. And so people are following him. He's a blasphemer. He's an imposter. He poses a threat to us. If people are following him, fewer people are going to be following us. If he causes trouble for us with Rome, they're going to come in and take away our place. So we need to get rid of them. In fact, one of the Jewish leaders says in John chapter 11, you know, it's more expedient that one person die for the people than that the whole nation perish. It would be better for us to have him killed or to kill him and retain our hold on the nation than lose the nation. And so when Pilate says, behold the man, the Jewish leader says, finally, finally, this imposter, this blasphemer, this threat to us and to our position and our power is going to be taken away. Some have seen through the years a a failed apocalyptic prophet. What I mean by that is some some believe that Jesus saw himself as a prophet preaching a cataclysmic end of the world coming very soon in his day, and then the kingdom of God would be established. And so he's getting ready, people ready for the apocalypse. The end of the world is just at hand. God is going to break into into the world and he's going to just wipe everything away and establish his kingdom. And of course that didn't happen. And so Jesus is an apocalyptic prophet But he was wrong about what was going to happen, and and so he died a failure. In fact, some people believe that Jesus went to the cross thinking that God would be so upset by this innocent man being treated this way and dying that God would be almost forced to act on his behalf. And so so some theologians have expressed that idea, circulated that idea that that Jesus died just, just a failure. When they behold the man, that's what they see. Some see the perfect example of obedience and humility and a willingness to suffer and a perfect example of love. And so in the cross, Jesus provides a perfect example of obedience. Remember in John chapter 6 and verse 36, Jesus says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I've come to do God's will. I've come to do the Father's will. And if it's the Father's will that I go to the cross, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to obey. We, uh, in connection with this, turn to Philippians chapter 2 quite often. I don't know of any passage that expresses the idea better. It says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. 
And so Jesus became obedient. This is the Father's will. And he, Jesus wasn't anxiously looking forward to it with delight, you know, going to the cross. But it was the Father's will. And so, and so he did it. He became obedient. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9 tell us that though he were son, yet he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're told that he has come to do God's will. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 7. That's what obedience is, really. Obedience is, is doing the will of someone else, in this case the Father, doing the will of the Father, even when we don't want to do it. That's obedience, you know. Just, just obeying or following instructions when it's agreeable to us, and then when it's not agreeable to us, not doing. That's not obedience. O obedience demands, requires us to follow the instructions even when we don't want to do it. Remember Jesus in the garden prayed, remove this cup from me. If, it, if, it, if it's within the scope of your will, remove this cup. But it wasn't in the scope of the Father's will, and so Jesus submitted and yielded and obeyed. It's a perfect example of humility. The crucifixion was a humiliating experience. It was a brutal experience physically, but, but it was a shameful, shameful thing to be crucified. As we've seen, Jesus is ridiculed and, and He's mocked. He's stripped of His clothing. He's crucified in a public place. As he's hanging there on the cross, people are hurling abuse and insult at him. It's just absolutely humiliating. It's a shameful experience. And yet, Jesus went through it all. Hebrews 12 and verse 2 says, He despised the shame. He sort of had contempt for the shame. <laughs> Willing to bear the shame of crucifixion and go to the cross. And so that takes humility, doesn't it? He humbles himself and he goes to the cross. It's also a perfect example of the willingness to suffer for God's cause. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, encourages servants to be willing to suffer and in that, follow the example of Jesus. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. A perfect example of a willingness to suffer. And all who live godly are going to suffer in some way. And so Jesus shows us how we ought to do that, being willing to suffer. And a perfect example of love. Greater love has no man than this, that He laid down His life for His friends. And so Jesus gave up His life for us. And He shows us what love does for one another. And if Jesus so loved us in laying down His life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for each other. We do that when we spend our time helping each other and spend our resources helping each other. And so we lay down our lives for one another following the example of Jesus. He shows us the perfect example of that. But that's not enough, is it? That, that if we stopped right there, we wouldn't be going far enough. To, to say Jesus is the perfect example of obedience, a perfect example of humility, a willingness to suffer, a perfect example of love, we, we really have to go further than that, don't we? What should we see? We see the ransom being paid for our sin. 
The idea of ransom or, or sometimes redemption there, those ideas very similar to each other, refers to a price paid for the release of someone from servitude or from obligation. In the Old Testament, for example, a, a slave might, might be redeemed. A, a ransom price might be paid and he could be released from that life of servitude. The firstborn, originally the firstborn, were to be given to God and, and those firstborn would serve God in the temple, for example, the tabernacle service. But, but then God allowed the Levites to be taken rather than the firstborn. Then the firstborn was redeemed from that obligation. And so a price was paid. A, a price was paid for the release of one from bondage. We're in bondage to sin. We're enslaved to sin. We, we've talked about that. John chapter 8 tells us that, that when we practice sin, we become a slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin is a, a slave to sin. And we see that easily when it comes to some sins like like the abuse of alcohol or drugs or gambling or pornography gets a hold of us and we become enslaved to it. But it's true of other sins as well. Anger, for example, or jealousy or lust or those things. Those things enslave us. We become a slave to sin and we're in bondage to the consequences of sin as well. And so we're in bondage to guilt and fear and shame and death. You see, Jesus sets us free from all of those things. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so in Christ, we are set free. His blood is the price paid to set us free. And so He is our ransom. In fact, that's the terminology used in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 5, there is one mediator between God and man, uh, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And so he's, he's our ransom. And so when we think about, there's, there's that man, Jesus, purple robe, crown of thorns, beaten and bloody, humiliated, dehumanized, degraded, weak. Well, what do you see? What do you see when you look, look, look at him, when you behold him in your imagination? I hope you see there's the ransom, the price paid for my release from sin. Well, we also should see that the wrath of God is being satisfied. When we behold the man, we need to see the wrath of God being poured out against sin onto Christ and away from us. Now Christ wasn't deserving of those things because He committed no sin. And yet He took our sins on Himself. He bore our sins in His body. And the wrath of God against sin, against our sin, was poured out upon Him. Now Romans 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And so our sin is deserving of the wrath of God. But God in His wisdom has so arranged it that His wrath against our sin may be poured out against Christ and not against us. And when we believe in Him, when we obey His gospel, then we are forgiven of our sins and we are set free from the wrath of God, saved from the wrath of God. Romans 5 verse 9 tells us that, "...much more than having now been justified by His blood, 
We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And so, when we see this man, Jesus, beaten, bloodied, crown of thorns, what, what do you see? I see the wrath of God being poured out against sin. That is, not his sin, but my sin. So that I don't have to suffer that wrath of God. We use the word propitiation to describe that idea, but, uh, but that's the idea, that the wrath of God is satisfied in Christ. And so, in fact, Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, God sees his anguish and is pleased. God sees the anguish of Christ in the cross and he is satisfied. And then thirdly, we see the necessary sacrifice for our sin. The Bible describes what Jesus did in those terms in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself for us, and offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And so Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. It's contained also Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of, Je of Jesus Christ once for all. And then verse 12. He having offered one sacrifice for his sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The sacrifice he offered was himself. Now the Old Testament teaches us that in order for sins to be forgiven, a sacrifice must be made, a life must be given, blood must be shed in order for sins to be forgiven. And for a period of time, God accepted animal sacrifices to serve that purpose. And so under the law of Moses, animal sacrifices were accepted by God. The life of an animal was given to satisfy God's requirement in order to forgive our sins. You remember the process? Leviticus chapter 4, the one who has sinned brings his sacrificial animal to the priest. He puts his hands on the animal, and the priest slays the animal and offers the blood. Remember that? This, this animal is, is serving in my place. He's standing in my place. And what is about to happen to him is what ought to happen to me. And so I'm offering him as a sacrifice for my sin. In the New Testament, of course, Jesus is that sacrifice. And actually, all the animal sacrifices that preceded the sacrifice of Jesus really looked forward to his sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible tells us that the blood of bulls and goats really can never take away human sin. And so Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, takes our sin upon himself and offers himself as a sacrifice for our sinning, and God accepts that. And so when we see that man, bloodied and beaten, and we hear Pilate say, Behold the man, I hope what we see is, there's the sacrifice for my sin. In short, when we behold the man, we should see the atonement for the sins of the world. And in a sense, we should see ourselves there, shouldn't we? As we see Christ going to the cross, on my behalf and in my place. And so we can see, in a sense, should see ourselves in that man. Now, think about that. 
Here's Pilate seizing Jesus and an opportunity to, to insult the Jews. Here the Jewish leaders see in Jesus, finally, we're getting rid of this imposter who's posing a threat to us. Some people see, see well, here's a, a man who kind of put himself forward as a prophet, but you know, ended up dying a failure. Some people see, well, here's an innocent man, a victim of people's cruelty and injustice, but we need to see more than that. We need to see this perfect example of obedience and humility and a willingness to suffer in love. We need to see the ransom being paid for our sins. We need to see the wrath of God being satisfied. We need to see the sacrifice for my sin being offered. In short, we need to see the Savior of the world. Here's the Savior of the world, including me. And what response should that bring from us? I want to follow him. I want to be one of his disciples. I want to be one of his people because of who he is and what he's done for me. And we hope that this will, if we haven't already started on that path, well then as a result of thinking of these things, we'll decide to do that. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity to come together today and to think about spiritual things to think about our relationship with you, to think about what you've done for us, to think about all the good things we have in life. We understand that every good and perfect gift comes from you, that, that you've given us all the things that we enjoy, our food, our clothing, our shelter. And oh, so much more than that, Father, we enjoy from your hand. Father, may we ever be thankful and grateful to you for what you've done for us. And, May we not only express that with our words, but also show in our deeds how thankful we are for what you've done. Above all, Father, we're thankful for the gift of your Son. We're thankful that he came to this earth, that he was willing to pay the price for us, that he was willing to pay the, the ransom, that he was willing to suffer on our behalf, that he was willing to bear our sins and take the brunt of your wrath and offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin. Father, we pray that those ideas will ever be in the forefront of our mind as we go about our lives from day to day, that we may follow him, devote ourselves to his service, so that uh, we might enjoy all the benefits of what he's done for us. We're so thankful, Father, that you are with us, that you satisfy our longings, that uh, being with you and living with the prospect of eternal life is all that we need. And we pray, Father, that we will ever be encouraged by that and that we will continue to live in a way that brings honor and glory to you so that those things will be ours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here, you're not a Christian today.